Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode, I talk with Karim Walker, who is a New Yorker, an organizer, and an activist. We discuss New York politics, American history, injustice, slavery, and neocolonialism, among many other things. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever. Thank you for having me, MC Squared. All right, sir. So tell me about what's going on in uh, New York politics. You're in Brooklyn. Uh, what's yeah. what's going on there? There was a recent uh, new mayor. I've, I've heard uh, some some people are a little bit unhappy with the new mayor. Well, give me a, give me a rundown of New York politics. What's been going on there? Okay. Well, in uh, New York made history in January first, twenty twenty two, when they inaugurated Eric Adams as the city's only this for the as the city's only second black mayor, the city's second black mayor, following David Dinkins, who, as many of us remember, uh, was mayor from 1990 to 1994, um, 16 Ed Koch. He is, for those who are not familiar with Adams, he was the former, he is the former captain in the NYPD. He also, and then transitioned into politics where he was uh, Brooklyn Borough President, which is the, uh, the top position in each of the five boroughs. Each borough has one. Um, and almost from the get-go, his administration has left much to be desired, especially in terms of issues of social justice, issues of uh, issues of housing. Um, He's pretty pro-police, is, is that right? I mean, I guess he has a background, it sounds like, as a police officer and as, as leadership in the police. But I think he's pretty pro-police. There was a movement to kind of defund New York police. And then is he kind of increasing that funding back to where it was or that kind of thing? Pretty much. Um, the recent budget hearings earlier, this, earlier in the spring basically uh, allocated almost half the city's budget or a little over half the city's budget to law enforcement. Which is very, very scary. And it's and mind you, this is at the expense of social services, education, um, parks, recreation, all the things that we really need to make sure the city runs functionally, that we have a civilized society. Um, and then uh, not just for police and training, too, but then police brutalities, criminal cases, lawsuits. I mean, so much of public money is going to uh, fund police, train police and pay out lawsuits for victims of police violence. And it's funny that you mentioned that last part because 
the city just settled a lawsuit stemming from the protests in 2020 following the death, the murder of George Floyd, excuse me. Um, it, and part of the terms of that settlement was that the city would have to have, would have to reevaluate and reassess how they handled demonstrations. Um, this just came out like either yesterday or today. And we are, and while we're very happy with that decision, uh, with that settlement, it's also clear that this is not going to end issues regarding how the police interact with civilians, especially communities of color. Wasn't um, wasn't New York? Was that the the stop and frisk thing? Wasn't was that a thing there? Was that am I remembering this correctly? Where you could just be stopped on the street and they could pat you down? And again, you're bringing up a very uh, a very interesting point because yes, uh, during the uh, during the twelve year tenure of Mike Bloomberg, New York City saw hundreds of thousands of stop and frisk incidents, most of them affecting black and Hispanic men. In fact, several reports showed that more black and Hispanic men were stopped and frisked by NYPD officers than there are black and Hispanic men in the entire city, Um, which of course eroded the trust of the city, uh, of the city's, of the communities of color where, uh, when it came to the police. Basically, ero- and really split the battle, forced battle line, people to choose sides. Do they support the police? Do they support the villains? Where do you, uh, where do you go? Um, of course, a lot of that, and of course, a lot of it also was in, and this is, of course, right around the same time that the now exonerated five, the five young black and Hispanic men who were accused of rape in 1989 against the Central Park jogger had been exonerated, had been had served, had been um, served their time, been released, been ex- and uh, been vindicated of their crimes, uh, sued the city, won their judgment, and black and Mayor Bloomberg's office still refused. To let it go, they still refused. They still refused to make it uh, to drop their appeals. That all changed when Bill De Blasio came into effect, came into office in 2014. He was pretty progressive, right? Am I am I seeing that right? He was a little bit more progressive than the, the mayors of the past. What compared to compared to his two immediate predecessors, Giuliani, who's now under indictment? Right. Yeah. The and, America's mayor, right? Oh gosh. Yeah, yeah and Giuliani. Mike. Bloomberg, yeah, and Mike Bloomberg. Yes, he was. He might have been a little bit better on race, and it, and so how much better? Lisa uh, is hard to say. Wasn't he one of the ones that were trying to, you know, was pushing for the defund uh, NYPD? Was is he one of the faces of that? Not really, not really. But and, uh, and part of that, especially considering the fact that. Just a few months into his term, as in his a few months into his first term in 2014, you had Eric Garner. It was the uh, individual that was choked to death. I can't breathe. Right. Correct. He was the one who was caught. He was out in Staten Island, who was held in a chokehold by Daniel Pantaleo out in Staten Island for about 11 minutes, saying he couldn't breathe. I think he couldn't say he couldn't breathe over cigarettes. Is that right? Something like that. That's what they say, but uh, from what I understand, there were no cigarettes found on his body or on his person. So, 
and of course that also was a part of it. that was that was also that was one of the first times that we had the killing of a black man at the hands of the police on camera for the whole world to see mind you this is about a month before michael brown is murdered out in Cal- out in uh, ferguson missouri um and we were just barely a year and a half after the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the murder of Trayvon Martin, which really, which was what really triggered uh, Black Lives Matter. That was the rallying cry. Uh, what do you think about race in this country? If you look at the, if you look on the maps, the electoral maps and stuff, you really haven't seen much change uh, since the Civil War. I mean, you have the same states, the same divides. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the problems have kind of just been swept under the rug, but have never been solved. So, what do you think about race in this country? I, you know, it's it, it's a good point that you make that the, that the um, that in many ways we are no better than we were 150 now 160 almost 175 years later. I mean, with the it's, it was good to abolish slavery certainly, but um, right thereafter, um, you know, with the Jim Crow South, which yes. essentially criminalized black. Um, life, um, yeah, black life, and then, and black existence. Yeah, and then and then you get essentially the chain gangs and prison yes. labor, which is essentially slave labor that we still have today. I mean, slavery has not been um, abolished completely in the United States. When you think about, um, you know, uh, prisoners, first off, you know, disproportionately uh, minority are locked up. Uh, we are a prison state, mass incarceration, two million uh, behind bars. Um, some of them making, you know pennies a day for their labor, maybe a dollar or two a day for their labor. I actually was talking with a prison guard down here in Texas, um, and he said that um, uh, in Texas they don't pay uh, prisoners for their labor. They just give them uh, credit uh, uh, towards good time, good time spent or whatever. So they're literally slaves. They're working and not getting any sort of um, payment. And, of course, and in some cases, uh, a lot of the reasons why you have places like Louisiana – Angola prison in Louisiana, which was originally a plantation, I might add. A lot of this, like you said, um, is a recreation of this is slavery 2.0. Actually, I take that back. This is slavery 3.0. This is slavery 3.0 that we're living in, um, that a lot of these prisons are. An offshoot of the worst days, the darkest days of slavery. And of course, this this is coinciding with what in America, it, the history of black-white relations in America as the nadir period, that period between just after Reconstruction ended in 1877 all the way up to the end of World War I, um, which was, which, where, you saw, uh, where you saw lynchings almost daily at the hands of persons unknown, to quote the, not, to quote the book by the, by the American historian Philip Dre. Um, and of course, you, this is the era where you start seeing things like Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Greenwood section of Tulsa, Oklahoma, being raised to the ground. Rosewood, Florida, being destroyed. And all, all, black, all black towns in place in Texas and Louisiana and Georgia and Florida just being destroyed. Um, and with it, the, the economic basis for, these, uh, for black life in the deep south. So I kind of want to get into the economic system. Um, 
the Republican Party, the two parties have switched, but the Republican Party at the time was the abolitionist party, the party of Lincoln. They actually thought the Civil War, they were fighting against wage slavery or the new industrial system that was taking over in the North, where essentially, you know, um, the new spirit of the age, as they called it, all for wealth, forgetting all but self. Um, and they were essentially um, renting themselves to a master for the subsistence get by. Uh, and then let's also go to the economic system in the South following um, the Civil War. I mean, wage, first off, wage slavery, they, what they were kind of con- fighting against, at least that they thought um, at the time, is not all that much different than chattel slavery other than it's temporary. But you're still under external command to a master, a boss, you know, if you want to talk about the corporate system today, um, where you have to kind of rent yourself under external command and they're, you know, kind of telling you what to do. Maybe you're in the middle of that system and you have someone underneath it and you're stepping on their throat telling them what to do. And perhaps you're at the bottom of the system. Uh, at best, you're just trying to get by, you know, and, and obviously in this country, uh, 725 an hour is not a living wage anywhere in the entire United States. But also let's go to Reconstruction in the South where, um, you know, slavery was abolished, um, you know, chattel slavery. But then they had this evil, twisted system, of course, the Jim Crow, um, you know, cl- criminalizing black life. Um, I also think that um, part of the drug war, um, locking up disproportionate amount of minorities on, um, you know, possession charges and that sort of thing. That's another way. Uh, and then we already talked about the prison system, how they already take advantage of, um, you know, uh, prisoners incarcerated, paying them pennies on the dollar and sometimes even less. But then the, the sharecropper system, which um, propped up um, or popped up in, in this following um the abolition of slavery after the Civil War. I guess it was around a little bit before then, but um, we're basically former slaves. Uh, and the, what the, I was reading on Wikipedia here, um, basically were the were one of the only options for the penniless freedmen who were former slaves on the land and then rented themselves to, or I guess rented their labor to um, the the farmer who owned the land. And at the end of the harvest, they would get to um, keep a, a certain percentage. Of the crops, so um, you know the conditions they were living in were really poor. Um, you know, many many times, you know, lots of people living in you know one room shacks and, and that kind of stuff. So, what do you think about you know the slavery, chattel slavery? What do you think about wage slavery? What do you, what do you think about sharecroppers uh, that propped up after Reconstruction? And just what do you think about um, you know the, the inequality that still remains in the United States for um, you know minorities in this country? One of the things I'm going to start with is because I'm actually reading a book right now by the late American historian, Eugene Genovese. It's called Roll, Jordan, Roll. And Genovese in his book begins with the paternalistic nature of antebellum slavery, antebellum chattel slavery. Um, and what you see, what you and the paternalism that these Southern planters practice was not very different from what you see, what you would have seen in mill towns in Massachusetts or upstate New York right around that same time. Um, we're talking about the 1880s or something like that, the era about, or the more generation? Like, more like that 25 to 35-year period right before South Carolina seceded from the Union. Okay. It, um, yeah. When you start seeing the industrialization, when you start seeing industrialization yeah. take root, in the north, at least, not necessarily the south, but definitely in the north, um, especially in places like Lowell, Massachusetts, yeah. or 
or um ju- or just north of the city along the Hudson River Valley in uh in upstate New York. The Factory Girls, I think they were the Lowell Girls, the Lowell Massachusetts Factory Girls had a working press. Uh, yes. Working at the time, we had a working cl- class press. Obviously, in the United States, we do not have one, at least not a strong one. And some some of their beliefs at the time were those who worked in the factories ought to own them. And I still feel the same way. I think that um, you know corporate stakeholders and working for an owner or a master is unnatural. I think that people that work in the factories, who work in the offices, who work in um, you know, workplaces around the country, regardless of what you do, I think you should own them, um, be involved in decision making, uh, be involved in the management and be involved in, you know, how these workplaces run. Exactly. Um, but one thing that Genovese makes a very good point and makes a very good observation in his book, um, and it's that what that the paternalism that was the, that the planters deployed in their justification for for race slavery in antebellum in the antebellum South is a direct, is not, is a rather direct offshoot of the feudalistic practices of medieval Europe, medieval, very early modern Europe, where you saw folks who were tied, where you saw serfs tied to their land in exchange for protection from, from their, from their overlords. Uh, this is, of course, that's and of course a lot of these planters saw themselves in that uh, in that same light, according to him. Um, but the slave, I'm sorry, we forgot. I completely forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I just wanted to interject here. I read in the about the feudalism, and maybe we can kind of compare and contrast. Um, but we were talking about sharecroppers and and that sort of thing. Sharecroppers, the economic system, and how I guess you know. Wage slavery and chattel slavery, um, at least, you know, aren't, aren't all that much different than, aren't, aren't, aren't all that much different other than their, you know, wage slavery is temporary. At least you get to get, get, get to go home at the end of the day, or maybe you're not working 24-7, 365, and maybe someday you can retire, but you're still renting yourself to, you know, a master under external command. You're not under your own autonomy. Uh, what I wanted to say, though, I read, read recently, I think the peasants in the feudalistic society, um, they got like 150 days off a year. Like most of the winter, they weren't working. They were just kind of able to drink or do whatever peasants you know did at the time. I kind of identify with the peasants. I certainly don't identify with the ruling class, the kings and the queens. So uh, I think it would be great to have 150 days off a year. You know, half the year off. Um, you know, here in the United States, working hours are going up, especially you know, post COVID. We talked a little bit in the pre-call. Um, we we had COVID and an opportunity to transform the system, work from home, and you know maybe go to go to a four day work week. All these different types of opportunities we could have um, maybe even started the transition to you know Green New Deal and try to you know energy efficient or renewable energy in terms of the economy. We still have a, a, an oil based economy. So many opportunities we had with COVID to transform the way. Um, we live our lives and we did none of that. We, we kind of, you know, with COVID uh, went right back to business as usual. And, and of course it's not over. Um, you know, I think a lot of people think it's over. There's cases propping up all over the country, hearing about schools that are shut down, workplaces where cases are, you know, uh, spreading like wildfire. 
Um, but yeah, let's get back into um, you know some of your readings and what do you think about like wage slavery? And here's an argument that I brought up. Um, you know, the the slavers, the masters, that sort of thing. They their argument was, um, you know, we, we own our slaves. You know, we're going to take care of them. We're going to feed them. Uh, we're going to you know shelter them. We are uh, they are an asset to us. You know, we're we're going to use them and take care of them, and they're going to be a benefit to us. And you know, we're going to whatever be paternalistic and take care of them. But the capitalists and the entrepreneurs or whatever, the industrialists uh, and, that, and that system that was taking hold in, in the North at the time um, who wanted to abolish slavery, the, the, the slave owners of the South were like, hey, you know, we, we own our slaves. We're going to take better care of them. You're just renting your workers. You know, as soon as exactly. um, you can get rid of them or replace them with robots or whatever, you know, you're going to do that. Uh, and that's obviously what's happening right now. And there's never been a good argument against that. I mean, whether we're rented or whether we're owned, we're still under external command from, from, uh, from a master. I'm an anarchist. So one of my battle cries or slogans is no gods, no masters, you know? Um, and this is something that to an extent Marx really d- does a great job in, dis- in, in, in his works, especially in Das Kapital. I edited out this part, uh, but some strange sound uh, begins playing from one of our laptops that we were not anticipating. I edited it out, and we get right back into the discussion. Apologize for the audio difficulties there. I'll leave this on. Let's leave that on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? That was trippy. Anyways, I got out my cap. I got my Das Kapital. I don't know. Maybe we're maybe we're being watched by the FBI right now. Who knows? That was weird though. But anyways, here's uh, here's my copy of Das Kapital. I am a, I'm not a Marxist, although I, I've read a lot of his work. Why don't you talk about Marx and his uh, maybe his influence in you and some of maybe your uh, literature backgrounds and your readings? What what kind of got you into um, you know maybe your current po- political viewpoints and, and and got you into activism? Okay, well. One of the well, one of the first books about Marxism that I read was not actually, believe it or not, was not the Communist Manifesto. It was a book by Cedric Cedric Robinson, who's a black scholar, and it was, and the book was called Black Marxism. And it looks at the way Marxism shaped black leftist thought, especially both here in the United States as well as abroad. Um, and he's part of that line of great leftist thinkers of African heritage, not just necessarily, not necessarily, not just necessarily African-American writers, but also those who hail from the Caribbean as well. Writers such as C.L.R. James from Trinidad authored the great book on, uh, on the, uh, on the Haitian slave revolt, the black Jacobins, which looks at, uh, Haiti's fight for freedom, um, or Claude McKay, the great black novelist from Jamaica, who's, who wrote, who recently discovered work amiable bit with big teeth looks at the dialogue between black uh blacks here in in new york city as well as their relationship with blacks abroad um and of course the, probably the greatest thinker of of any race ever to be born in the united states w.e.b du bois the author yeah so, i've read a lot of his stuff he's great yeah he is fantastic and he is mandatory reading for anybody he is mandatory being for anybody in this country, especially the souls of black folk, if you read nothing else by him. And of course, another great black leftist thinker was James, was James Baldwin. I mean, he was, he was very open about that. And, and of course, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Ella, and, uh, 
and Elaine Brown, the only black woman to lead the black, the first black woman to lead the Black Panthers, um, Stokely Carmichael and, and Malcolm X. Um, uh, black leftism, leftism and black thought is uh, has left, leftist politics has a very strong has left an indelible mark on black thinking on black on, on black intellectual history um, and in the black literary tradition. Um, and of so, course, can you go into a little bit about um, the the revolutions, uh, the slave revolts in Haiti? That was the was that the only widespread slave revolt that was a success? Is, am I reading that correct? Or is that, how, is that my interpretation of it? A little back, correct. You are correct about that. And a little bit of background. In, in 1789, we all know what happened in France in 1789, the storming of the Bastille. We walk, we talk about uh, what was the one of the first things that they did was establish a new government that set with a declaration of the rights of the citizen and the man or the man and the citizen which says that all men are born free and equal. Of course, ripping it directly from Thomas Jefferson and, this, uh, and the uh, Declaration of Independence. But what- I do like Thomas Jefferson. I'm a philosopher. I do like a lot of Thomas Jefferson's stuff. Uh, and I like some of John Locke's stuff. Um, John Locke, his day job was writing constitutions for the, colon- for the colonies in, in the United States, uh, yeah. North Carolina, uh, which had slavery. So he was a lot of talk from- John Locke about liberty and freedom and all that kind of stuff, but his day job was taking freedoms away from uh, black people. Uh, same with Thomas Jefferson. I think he said some great stuff about yeah. freedom and justice and liberty and democracy. Yeah. He was a classical liberal. Um, I liked a lot of you know you know the Enlightenment era is my favorite era of philosophy. But when you read some of his stuff, you have to remember he, he owned slaves, you know. And, and at the time of his death, I believe he didn't even set them free. I think he left it up to his wife. Um, that's uh, at least something that you would think if, if you, actually. yeah, that was Washington actually who left the, who left. From what I remember, according to terms of Washington's will, the the slaves that he owned in his own right uh-huh. were to be freed at once Martha died in eighteen oh two. Okay. Uh, but Mar- but Martha didn't wait that long. She actually went down to uh, Fairfax County to the I guess to the clerk's office in Fairfax County and declared her 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 late husband's slaves free. She would she would she had her own slaves. She actually had more. She actually owned more slaves than her than John that uh, Washington had owned. But she parceled those out according to terms of her will. Martha Washington, as we all know, George Washington's widow, first first lady of the United States, although she didn't have the title. Um, Officially, she owned her own slaves. Some of which she owned when she was prior to, not only prior to her marriage to George Washington, but I think also prior to her marriage to her first husband, John Custis, um, who let who had left her a widow. But wow, you're when, deep into history. You're you're big into this stuff, huh? Yeah, but I recently found out a few months ago that one of her descendants, I think her great granddaughter, was actually born into slavery. Interesting. I'd have to I, I'd have to double check, but I I think I just read recently that one of her great grandchildren she had a great granddaughter born into slavery, which was which is really trippy. Um, but Jefferson himself, yes, he owned approximately two hundred slaves at the time of his death, but he only slave he only and only freed three in his lifetime, okay. while for, yeah. and his will freed five more, but all eight of those slaves were related to him by blood some way or another. Okay, uh, and of course we all know by now his uh, his relation his 
for lack of a better term, relationship with Sally Hemings yep. is now common knowledge. Yeah. Um, and even as recently as 1998, their descendants were fighting for acknowledgement from Jefferson's descendants, mm-hmm. um, which I think is insane. And uh, but uh, of course, it wasn't really that, it shouldn't have been that controversial because I believe in the 18, 1830s to 1840s, the American novelist William Wells Brown wrote a novel basically modeled off of this, uh, off that uh, called, uh, the, called Clotel and subtitled The President's Daughter or The President's Daughter, which basically looked at the relationship that the uh, the speculation that Jefferson had fathered a child with Sally Hemings. But, um, but getting, uh, yes, getting back to Haiti, 1789, Francis, Francis uh, the French Revolution begins with the storming of the Bastille. You see the French, the National Assembly established what formerly the third estate, which made up the common folk, discuss, uh, establish the Declaration of the Rights of Men and the Citizen. But one thing that gets left out is the role of slavery. But before we, I think we should make one thing perfectly clear. The, the, the slave revolt, the revolt on Saint-Domingue, which is what Haiti used to be called, which was what the, the French name gave their name, um, named the island, named their colony, was more of a, a matter of opportunity. It was a very it was a very opportunistic time. There was so much turmoil in France that Haiti had no choice but to that Haiti had picked the right time basically to revolt. Of course, this does not sit well, not only with France, but it also sit, doesn't sit well with the United States government, with George Washington's government at the time, because. Haiti is not that far from main, from the uh, from mainland from North uh, from British North America. You cannot get the idea of having a black republic so close to mainland North America and give the, and give slaves ideas about seeking their own independence, which is exactly what happened. Jefferson uh, Washington would back the French in their reconquest. Jefferson and Washington actually backed the French in the bid to take back Saint-Domingue. John Adams actually supported the slaves themselves, which was interesting. Um, but I guess it also it says, but it's also quite telling because of the three, Adams was the only one who didn't own Did slaves. Did not have slaves, right. Yeah, he was a northerner. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I think that kind of sets the seeds for American foreign policy uh, a lot of the American foreign policy decisions um, are based on uh, the idea of, um, you know, a, a, a rotten apple um, will contaminate the whole barrel. You know, the right. uh, the rot will spread. You know, and that's kind of the idea in Vietnam. Um, and same kind of same goes for you know Haiti at the time. And even modern day Cuba, you know, with the Cuban Missile Crisis and Fidel Castro, you know, taking, um, you know, I guess the the, the Cuban uh, government in, you know, taking it on a different path outside of, you know, the United States sphere of influence and, you know, against, I guess, uh, typical colonial development. A lot of the money flowed from Cuba to, to New York banks and back to the United States. And, and uh, you know, kind of what Castro wanted to do was keep that money 
on the island. Um, so what the United States does in their in their um, terroristic campaigns and sometimes outright aggression uh, as it relates to um, countries that are, go on their own path of independent development, they want to send a message to not only their allies, certainly their allies, but also to the other enemies uh, of the United States, foreign and domestic. And this is this is what happens, you know, when you go against the master. This is I, I think Noam Chomsky is my favorite author. Uh, he kind of he kind of um, he kind of like uh, equates foreign policy to Godfather, you know. Uh, mentality or mafia mentality where, you know, the United States, um, you know, it's not about the money. It's not about if Cuba wanted to economically develop outside, you know, the United States fear of influence and that sort of thing. But it's about sending a message, you know, the Godfather, it's not about the money when, when the local joint doesn't pay the Godfather protection money. It's about sending a message to everyone else in the community. So you go in there with lead pipes and you break some legs, you know, it's again, it's not about the money. And that's, and the same goes here for, for Haiti, Cuba, Vietnam, and any other country in Latin America um, with the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine um, that was basically say, said that, you know, the United States is going to control this hemisphere, you know. Uh, it's going to co- control North America, Central America, Latin America, um, and it doesn't want any outside foreign influence, you know. And after, I guess, um, the French were kicked out of Haiti, um, the United States kind of took over. Um, but, you know, again, that that's kind of the idea. They don't want leaders, leadership in the United States, don't want um, an example to the rest of the world that, hey, look at this um, small island, you know, in Haiti or Cuba, right off the shore of the United States, which is going its own course of development, you know, which is, um, you know, led by black people, you know, perhaps in Haiti um, and, and that sort of thing. Um, it doesn't want that, you know, and of course, you know, maybe John Adams sided with, um, you know, uh, the slaves there in Haiti, but certainly, you know, I would say the United States, he was probably, I would, I'm guessing here, he was probably outside the norm, the United States establishment, which at the time was really run by Virginia. I mean, we had the Virginia dynasty. Uh, these were all slave owners in Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, the framer of the constitution who framed it as a way uh, that said something like government is to protect the opulent minority from the majority. What does that say to you? The opulent minority at the time was rich, white, you know, slave owners. Um, and then, of course, Monroe with the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine. So pretty much the country in, in American politics was run through Virginia. I would say, um, you know, um, uh, you know, John Adams was probably outside the norm, you know, siding with Haiti. But how do you, how do you think about that? How do you think that the Haiti um, slave revolt set the stage for American foreign policy um, on the big stage moving forward. At the time, certainly in the late 1700s, the United States was not a world superpower. But at the time of World War One, you know, the United States was already, 100 years later, was already the center of world manufacturing. And after World War Two. The United States had, I think, 6.5% of the world's population and half the world's wealth. So in little more than 100 years, the United States went from, you know, this tiny little, uh, you know, 13 colonies, um, you know, that broke away from Britain to be a world superpower pretty fast. Yeah. And, and you just, and you, in a way, you answer your own question because the United States, <laughs> I do that sometimes. Let me explain. Um, the... Haiti won its independence from the from France in 1804, becoming the first, becoming the second Western Hemisphere nation to secure its former colony to secure its independence after the United States. 
However, the United States would not recognize Haitian sovereignty until 1862. Wow. 58 years. What was going now? We what was going on in 1862? Of course, the American Civil War. Yeah. You you have 11 states having seceded from the United having seceded from the Union and what and Lincoln needs the support of the United Kingdom and France to secure uh to secure a victory. This is, of course this is, of course the Confederacy thinking that say, hey we have all this land we have all this cotton the UK can definitely uh the UK has to support us because they need cotton for their mills but little did they realize the United uh England uh, the United Kingdom already has can get cotton from India, which it, or the Indian subcontinent, which it had subdued back in 1857, following the first war for Indian independence, or they could get it from Egypt. Egyptian, so they didn't at a fraction. It might not be the same quality of cotton as what was produced in the South, but it was still very good cotton, and they could probably and they could and they could ship it much quicker and for a fraction of the and probably a fraction of the cost, um, especially once the Suez Canal is established, but. It's but the establishment of but Haiti's Haitian sovereignty and Haiti's relationship with the United States in those first several decades will set the tone for what the United States will do in terms of foreign policy, especially when you see the Spanish the, the Spanish Empire break apart in Latin in, in the Western Hemisphere with Argentina and Chile and Venezuela and Colombia and ultimately Mexico, all securing independence between the, in eight, at various points in the 18 teens and 1820s. That's, that's kind of when the America uh, got into its own form of imperialism, right? After defeating right. Spain, a crumbling world power, and then kind of took over all of its colonies, right? So that would actually, actually be in 1898 when... The United States is actually beating, has actually, and of course, this year marks the 125th anniversary of the war that former Secretary of State John Hay called a splendid little war, yeah. the war with Spain, which, okay. which of course, which would of course force Spain to cede over the Philippines, the Philippines. and Guam and Puerto Rico to the United States, alongside and give and grant and grant Cuba its independence as well. Um, although the United States would have its foothold in Guantanamo Bay. Um, Which is a torture chamber. The only reason the United States has a prison in Cuba is so it can have a torture chamber that uh, operates outside of U.S. law and jurisdiction. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but the United, But what happens with... The, but the Monroe Doctrine will definitely set the tone for and anyone who's a, even has a passing interest in the history of U.S. foreign policy, we'll know what the Monroe Doctrine did. I think it's still kind of in play now. I mean, is it ever, yeah. is, you know? I don't think it's ever been repealed. Yeah. It yeah. certainly has I don't think, and in fact, if memory serves me correctly, Theodore Roosevelt actually expanded upon it yeah. with his Roosevelt corollary, corollary, excuse me, um, especially with, in terms of U.S. relations with Cuba. Um, but of course, it would also set the tone for a lot of what would happen with with the filibusters in the 1840s. People like William Walker going down to Nicaragua and trying to stake their own claims. Um, the Knights of the Golden Circle 
who are also trying to state their claims in in another country. And of course, this is right around, and of course, this is in the 1840s. You also have uh, 1820s, 1830s. You have the likes of Stephen F. Austin and Sam Houston basically staking their own claims in Mexico, in the next in the Mexican territory that would later become the state of Texas. Um, it wasn't. Uh, it was New Mexico, Arizona, and California. That was all part of the conquest there, too. Well, well, yes, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and I believe Colorado, as alongside Texas, were all part of that newly established sovereign country of Mexico. But, and of course, a lot of that would get carved up after the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which would end that war. And of course, later the Gaston Purchase, which would uh, which would solidify the lat- that last little sliver of land, I believe, at the border between um, New Mexico and Arizona. Um, well, we haven't even talked about the indigenous yet. You know, we're talking a lot of world history or U.S. history. Um, your your knowledge of history is incredible. I'm just letting you go here. I mean, I'm learning so much just from your conversation. Um, but you know, what about the you know the extermination? Um, and the mass genocide of the indigenous people that were living here, the millions of people. Um, I, I've read about, you know, biological warfare, knowingly, um, you know, colonizers coming over and, and giving the Native Americans who they knew didn't have immunity, not right away, but once they found it out, they used it as biological warfare to, you know, smallpox and these different diseases that Europeans had immunity to that the natives did not. Um, how does that play, you know, into kind of your... Um, you know, to, to your, uh, I guess, understanding of American history and, and its founding. I think the United, uh, United uh, States was a nascent empire. It was an, it was an empire from the day it was founded. It was, it was um, you know, it was founded on um, colonialism, um, you know, and, and basically uh, wiped out a huge territory from, you know, the East Coast to the West Coast, 3,000 or so miles um, North, south, uh, you know, taking over lands, violating treaties with the natives. Um, what do you think about the American Revolution? Um, that was part of uh, uh, George Washington's, um, you know, military conquest too. Part of not part of some of the things he was doing at the time um, was killing, um, you know, Native Americans and, and exterminating them. I think the Native Americans called uh, George Washington, George Washington, the village destroyer. So it's funny that often gets left out of um, the American Revolution and American history that, you know, Washington, at the same time he was fighting the Brits, uh, he was fighting and, and killing and destroying um, Native American life and existence. Um, and uh, that's one of the reasons why we have, uh, is it the Second Amendment that's all about the guns, uh, right? I don't, I don't know too much about the Constitution stuff. It doesn't enter, interest me as an anarchist. I think it was the Second Amendment. But the part of the reason that we have such strong gun laws here is because um, slave owners um, who out, who were outnumbered by their slaves needed to keep these weapons. At least that was their thought and th- thinking process. They needed to keep these guns to keep the slaves in control. Uh, but also, you know, the settlers on the frontier they needed um, guns and weapons to exterminate the Native Americans. So, very violent history. You don't learn about too much of this stuff uh, in your uh, in your grade school and, and middle school, do you? Not really. But I will say this: uh, the Peace of Paris, the 1763 uh, treaty that ended the, what we call in the, in North America the French and Indian War, but the first what what the, but the what was also known as the Seven Years' War, a term that 
was first coined, I believe, by Winston Churchill, ever imperialist that we know one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one of the basically left a, a, a question unanswered. What was going to be the relationship between the settlers and the natives and the indigenous populations in North America, especially in places like Virginia and North Carolina? There was a proclamation that there was a proclamation line um, that banned exp- westward expansion into uh, the British, uh, and this is where London, I, for all of the uh, for all of George III's flaws, and he had, and I am no many, and he had many, but the I believe it was the government of William Pitt the young uh, William Pitt the younger who basically put that in policy, that policy in place and it did not sit well with the, with those living in the, in, in like Virginia and North Carolina what we call Virginia and North Carolina sure. and, and the Native Americans they they knew they that's why they fought on the side of the revolution on the British side because yeah, they knew yeah. very well what was going to happen to them if if uh the the yeah. colonizers you know the yeah. You know, they won the independence from Britain. They knew very well, and that's they why they fought the against. Uh, yeah, that's why they fought against American independence because they knew their lands and their treaties and everything would be taken from them in a short period of time. And it was after the uh, United States won its independence, creating a so-called democracy. Uh, certainly not a democracy, though. If you were a Native American, if you were a woman, or if you were a slave, right? Um, and even if you were free, if you even if you were, pardon me, a free black. You were not necessarily guaranteed the secure. You were not necessarily the uh, the blessings of liberty were not necessarily secured. No. Um, it, even if you were a free man of color, never mind a free woman of color. Um, sure. And that and it gets me to what you said: the nature of biological warfare, and and viruses and epidemics and diseases and epidemics in the founding of American history. And as we all know, when the Spanish first came. When Columbus first landed in the Caribbean, in, Santa, in um, the, the island that he would call Salvador, um, I believe it was in Puerto Rico, in, Puerto Rico, in 1492, um, almost from the moment that Columbus arrived, one of the first things that, uh, in addition to one of the worst things that they, uh, of all the things that the Spanish inter- introduced into the New World, probably is it was disease, it was viruses, epidemics. That was probably the most insidious thing that they introduced, even even more so than the animals that were the invasive the invasive species of animals such as pigs and horses that they uh, that they introduced, or even religion. It was the uh, it was the diseases that really because you had you can't fight with it's hard to fight what you can't see. Yeah, and um, and this and mind you. Europe is basically a hundred, about 150 years removed from the bubonic plague, the Black Death that wiped out almost half the European population um, and really marked the beginning of the end of the medieval period, of Europe's medieval period. Um, But, and of course, and of course you have the the introduction of chicken pox, smallpox, measles mumps um the flu what all these all these viruses and epide- and diseases that come that and subsequent diseases and epidemics that really not only destroy bodies 
but ultimately destroy uh, cultures that had been in existence for several thousand years. I want to get to that, too, about the cultures. So colonialism versus slavery, um, really similar methods. I mean, it's just power, right? One one class of people or one uh, sect of, of the population over another. They used religion, and I think they used this with um, the native population here as well as slaves. They used religion to control um, slaves and the colonized people. Um, certainly, um, you know, they, they burned, um, from what I read about the Spanish, burned books. There were lots of books um, in, in, in the Americas. Uh, they tried to get rid of and eradicate all of the native culture. They banned reading, right, and learning, essentially, for the slaves. Um, and just a lot of, a lot of I guess, techniques of domination and control that were, I, I see a lot of similarities with them. What about you? I do as well. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, uh, it wasn't just the banning of reading and writing as sl- uh, slaves. They also banned the, con- the uh, they banned the Aztecs and the Inca really from learned from speaking their languages. If I remember, if I remember, they did, yeah. And that's what they did with the Native Americans here in the United States. I've read. Um, I yes. think I have the Indigenous People of Indigenous People's History of the United States. That's a good book. Uh, I've read 1492, 1493. Um, but what they did with the Native Americans, they put them in boarding schools uh, right. across the country breaking up family units and didn't allow them to speak native languages, basically indoctrinating with uh, them with Western culture. Correct. Um, and I've always said that of all the tools that were used to conk, to subjugate the native, to, uh, to, to subjugate the native populations of, of the Western hemisphere, the most powerful one was language. When you look, I mean, think about it. There's a reason why French is spoken on five of the six, is an official or co-official language on five of the six continents, excluding Antarctica. There's a reason why English is an official language or an official, is the or an official language on countries on six, on six of the seven continents. The same with Spanish. These were languages of empire. These were languages that were, these were languages that were in some ways designed to be imperialist in their nature. Um, and once you, and, and as you said, once you indoctrinate young, young minds to dis, uh, basically to, in an effort to sever them from their, uh, from their culture, you can have them do whatever you can make them putty in your hands. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, mainly going off of Chomsky here. Uh, he's, you know, again, my favorite author. But he was basically saying that, you know, history, like there's not a lot of indigenous histories out there. There's not a lot of books on it. Like I, I find the, fa- the topics fascinating. Like, you know, what was going on here in the Americas prior to, you know, 1491, that sort of thing. What was going on prior yeah. to, quote unquote, Columbus discovering or how about, you know, Columbus and the, the Spanish, um, you know, essentially dominating and colonizing, um, you know, the, the New World. But, you know, what was going on here? And there, there's not a rich history uh, of study. And, in fact, um, it was that was that was a reason they wanted to, again, eradicate kind of native culture. And probably some of the, um, you know, slaves that were brought over here, they wanted to probably eradicate, you know, some of their culture. Uh, from some of my readings or whatnot, you know, they used, I guess, songs and, and different things to kind of, you know, incorporate it o- over here. Um, 
But you know that was that was you know part of the uh, you know part of the tactic of colonization and domination. Um, and not until I guess after the civil rights era of the 1960s, um, at least going on with Chomsky, read that you know s- s- people started studying this stuff. You know, and it, and it became popular in mainstream you know universities and colleges in the United States. But prior to a hundred plus years, you know, there wasn't much study. Um, it was just kind of like a dirty little secret that, yeah, the native population was, was wiped out and here we are, you know? And in some cases, they, if I remember some of the sources, they actually, in some cases, glorified that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, cowboys and Indians, you know, yeah. uh, I, I mean, you know, a lot of people played that growing up or, you know, in past generations where, you know, people were, you were a cowboy, you had to wipe out the Indians. They're going to shoot you, you know, yeah. shoot you down. So that's part of the crazed gun culture. And, you know, that the Western, uh, Western culture, which was not a real era. It was just kind of a, you know, a dime novel era and a marketing technique to sell guns. You know, we had to have a reason to sell guns after the civil war was ever. So this, you know, this Western outlaw type, you know, fiction was created, uh, which was not a real period of time and never existed. I agree. Um, and yeah, the, the use of biological, the use of viruses and the use of language basically made the indigenous populations of the, of the Western hemisphere sitting ducks. I hate to say it. Yeah. Made them sitting ducks. Um, because once you, because now you've, because once you've wiped out, once you use the viruses, once you use disease to wipe out the populations, the cultures start to die. And those who do survive, you could probably, you can are now pray to whatever you want to teach them. I think you're exactly right on here. Because again, some of these books that I was reading, I quoted some of them. Um, a small group, a few hundred, maybe a couple thousand Spanish conquistadors um, overtook countries and, and towns and cities, um, and which would not have been possible without biological warfare. Correct. I mean, Hernando Cortez, when he took over Tenochtitlan, which would now become Mexico City, only had, a, only had uh, I think, a few dozen soldiers with him to take out uh, 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 the forces of... The, the Aztec warriors, in uh, in, uh, and it's the same with Francisco Pizarro, when his soldiers obliterated the Inca after the after the death of Atahualpa, the last the last of the emperor the last of the Inca emperors. Um, and again, you see this over and over and over again in various parts of the Spanish Caribbean, of the, of the Hispanic Caribbean, and even to a lesser extent in Port- when Portugal colonizes what we now call Brazil. I think that Mark Twain said this, history, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. I mean, it rhymes a lot, doesn't it? it the rhymes, the rhyme scheme is, is eerily <laughs> consistent. Yeah. Eerily consistent. Yeah. Say. Um, and you're right about, uh, right about Twain. He did. Say, I believe he did say that. Um, I think he's also quoted this, uh, they call it business when the, when the rich, uh, whatever, rob from from the everyone else, and when the population fights back, they call that violence. I think he's credited with that kind of. Uh, I don't know if he actually said that, but I, I always like that one. They call it business when the rob rich and uh, when the rich rob and steal, and they call it violence when when we fight back against them. Yeah, he was. If that's something he wrote, if that's something he said, it's very true. I can yeah. definitely say something to that. That yeah. Um, but yeah, the. 
Let's let's talk to some new era colonialism. You have, I think, Palestine in your bio. What's going on in Palestine? I mean, that's a lot. It's just uh, you know modern colonialism, right? Yes, but you know that's actually a great idea. That's actually a great way to describe it. It is a new form of colonialism. Of course, as we all know, Israel came out came into existence following World War II in 1948, and of course, right after Israel is established, I believe Egypt. Syria and Jordan uh, declared war on the new Israeli state. And then in 1967, I believe following the Six-Day War, that's when, it's not until 1967 when following the Six-Day War, that's when you start seeing Israel become much more aggressive in how it relates to to our our neighbors in the Middle East. And I, um, especially when it starts taking more and more Palestinian land to the point that in 1987, you have what's called the uprising or the intifada, the first intifada, the first, the first intifada, which is 1987. And then the second intifada is in 2000. Um, although, and for the most part with the, and with the, really with the exception of With the exception of, I believe, Itzhak Rabin, and even he, and even then, it's just uh, it's a it's it's still kind of shaky. None of the leaders of how none of the leaders of Israel have ever really given um have really been any have ever really been committed to any kind of making any kind of deal with Palestine. Um, so Chomsky, uh, and I've read a lot of his stuff. This is a cause he takes very seriously. Chomsky says that, um, so we had South Africa, which was an apartheid state, which was supported by the United States and the Reagan administration right up till the minute it was you know, dissolved. I think Nelson Mandela was on the terrorist list and needed a special special permission to visit the United States up until, I think, the, the 2000s. <laughs> I mean, I incredible. On, I believe he was on the terrorist watch list until 2008. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah. But Chomsky actually calls, um, uh, um, you know, Israel worse than uh, an apartheid state because an apartheid state, you had, you know, class... Uh, you know, rigid class lines in society, but the, but the blacks, I guess, in South Africa, um, were, uh, you know, kind of the service they they did, they did the service industries, you know, they did, they did the work, uh, in the society, a lot of the work in the society in, um, Israel and Palestine, they're essentially having their lands stolen. They're being thrown in jail, killed, exterminated. So it's not exactly apartheid. It's worse than that. And he would not be wrong. Um, and I think you, I think you could throw a lot of slings and daggers at, at Chomsky. But in this case, he is right. Hey, that's my guy. That's my guy right there. So no, I know. I mean, of course, no. I don't raise anyone to divine status, which is why I don't um, call myself a Marxist. But I think Chomsky's right about a whole lot. He's my favorite influence. But no, no doubt, you can, you could, you could go at my my homeboy. Uh, but he's my favorite author, and he's definitely my biggest inspiration. That's why he called it Necessary Illusions. It's actually named after a Chomsky lecture series. Nice, <laughs> uh, but. What you and like you said, what we're seeing in Palestine, what we're seeing in Palestine, and I really don't like calling it Israel unless I really, really have to, um, is worse than apartheid. It really is because, as you said, we are seeing. We just ha- earlier this year we had a noted, we had a noted journalist, Shireen Ab- 
Shireen Abdul. Oh God, I can't even remember her name now. But she was a noted now. She was a noted journalist for the New York Times, who was murdered by Israel. And then they, first they said, "Oh, first they denied that they killed her," and then they said, "Yeah, we kind of did." Yeah. Yeah, we kind of did. So, oops, sorry. And that was that was their, that was basically their uh, their response to it. Um, very, very. And you know, throwing throwing children, prosecuting children, throwing them in jail for throwing uh, rocks at these stormtroopers that are you know uh, terrorizing their villages and cities and you know uh, colonizing their lands. I mean, these kids uh, who are victims of violence. And if you see how these. Uh, Israeli um, armed forces, how they're weaponized. I mean, you know, I, I think calling them stormtroopers isn't isn't too much of a fiction, you know. No, it's not. No, it's not at all. Because, and of course, considering the fact that the Israeli government, that Israel is the United is the biggest recipient of foreign aid from the United States. I got to quote that aid. You know what, what, yeah. what we call aid, but see, our aid is typically. Weapons, militaries, we're the largest armed producer in the world. I think um, over 50% of armed uh, weapons sales essentially uh, involve the United States, whether we're selling them or whether we're buying them. Um, yeah. We're a terror state, the largest in world history. Um, and, uh, you know, Israel would collapse without United States political economic and military support. Israel does not produce its own attack helicopters. Um, uh, you know, we, we essentially build these helicopters. We call them the Apache helicopters. We send them to Israel. And then this is another one of my favorite lines. So we, we killed the Native Americans, genocide, wiped them out. I say we as an American. Uh, and then we name our helicopters uh, after them, our attack helicopters, the Apache attack helicopters. Uh, and his, his reference was, um, what if the Nazis named their planes and helicopters Jews and Gypsies, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And it's funny that you bring up Israel because very recently, we began, and we began this, this, back, this podcast talking about the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. He was actually in Israel very recently. I believe he was in Israel last week on a visit, visiting Israel. And, what, and I bring that up simply because the United States, uh, NYPD, have, has, I believe either NYPD officers have received training from the IDF or the IDF got training from NYPD. I think it's actually the former. Yeah, I know that there's there's all kinds of training between um, you know Israel armed forces, American armed forces work together. I think the Brits too, and that's one thing. Um, you know, in in Israel, what they are able to do with the weapons contractors is test these new weapons on um, live persons uh, on the Palestinians. So you know, when you want to test out new weapons of uh, you know killing, um, what you can do is give them to the Israeli. Uh, army um, and let them, you know, go out and test them on uh, and against the Palestinians who are, are just there trying to uh, survive, basically. Yeah, and of course, um, Israel's had its hand in almost every major incident that's happened in the Middle East since its establishment. Of course, it invaded Lebanon in 1982, I believe, um, and I believe it also has had some. And now it's now making. It's uh, it's presence you known with a deal with India with with the right wing government in India right now uh, with the Ranger Modi. 
And that's a big problem, too. Right-wing governments across the world, I think, with COVID-19 and Trump coming to power. Um, unfortunately, it's starting. We have, we have, a, we have a, definitely a, a working-class labor resistance that's forming. And, and I think worker organizing is in unprecedented uh, levels right now. But looking at global politics, um, again, a lot of surveillance states, militarism, constant war, and right-wing governments around the world taking power. Uh, and the only way we are going to fight back is through solidarity. And I think yes. working class international movements against concentrated wealth and power. Exactly. Um, it's funny. And it's funny you bring that up because as you, as I probably, as you probably see me read on, as you saw, probably, as you probably read what I posted on Twitter, I was in Germany just two weeks ago, um, which of course, as we all know, was probably the center of right wing right wing uh politics in the middle in those middle decades in that in like that first third first half of the 20th century and with- let me let me interject here we talked about the jim crow south that's where hitler got inspiration for nazi germany um and he actually said that, loss. yeah he actually thought they went too far they were too cruel yeah um, and of course he, he got his, he, as you, as you rightly mentioned, he did get his, the Nuremberg race laws were based off of Jim Crow, the Jim Crow South and his idea of the concentration camps came from the U S government and from both the U S and the U and the UK with the UK putting, uh, following the Anglo Boer war of the late 19th, early 20th century, 1899 to 1902, where the British were British regulars would hold the Boers in these in concentration camps, not not which were eerily similar to the concentration camps that Americans that Americans that the the U.S. troops would put uh, Native Americans in during the last of the Indian Wars, the last of the uh, the last of the uh, Native American Wars of the eighteen eighties, eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, and eighteen nineties. Um, yeah, Hitler got inspiration from both from both those governments. So. Uh, the thing about one thing I've learned about right wing governments is that they usually take play take pages from each other's playbooks. Absolutely, uh, history um, rhymes what, quite a bit with right wing politics. Yes, um, and you're seeing this in Hungary with Viktor Orban, who is basically uh, who could be another who. Time will tell if he will be another Mussolini, but he's definitely on that path. Um, what I see is typically some group of people are scapegoated, you know, uh, yes. in the United States and Trump. Uh, and I think it sounds like he's, he scapegoated the Mexicans or the minorities taking our jobs, coming into our country. And Germany, of course, it was Jewish people. Um, you know, I'm not I'm, I'm certainly not a right wing politi- political expert, um, but it seems like, you know, there's always a group of people that are scapegoated and blamed for the problems in society when you could just go, go to Wall Street you know, that's where you are in New York. I think we could go to Wall Street, and, and I think that's the center of our, a lot of our problems in the United States. Indeed, absolutely, because scapegoating has been, is always an issue, is always a thing. Um, as we all, at the end of World War, when Germany lost World War One, who did the, who did uh, Anton Drexler and the, and the German Workers' Party that he founded look to scapegoat, look for a scapegoat, look to Jews, look to communists, look to homosexuals. That those are the same. Those are the three. Those are the same groups that its successor, the NSDAP or the Nazi Party, would also scapegoat. 
Um, so it's very it, it, it it's very telling. You I want to I want to you talked about a Black Panther writer. I, you mentioned her name. I forget. Um, but how about let's go back to the United States politics, um, the Black Panther movement and the targeting and killing of Fred Hampton. Did you read anything about that? Uh, that's an interesting story uh, that if you could talk to, uh, I'd love you to, to speak on a little bit. I haven't read as much of the black on the black on the history of the Black Panthers as I probably should and definitely would like. But one thing I've always noted, one thing that we all, one thing I find very interesting is how the Black Panthers were done not from enemies without, but from enemies within. And we, I think yeah, there was moles within the organization, and I think at the time I was reading, there's only a couple hundred Black Panthers in the United States, but yet they were on the FBI watch list. They were saying some things that uh, the ruling class and those in power didn't want to hear. COINTELPRO, and of course COINTELPRO and uh, and the FBI, FBI's COINTELPRO counterintelligence program, or COINTELPRO for short, um, basically looked to silence whatever strong voices, especially strong voices of color as as quickly as they possibly could. Um, I believe it was 2022 that we had that movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, about the murder of Fred Hampton. Um, the kids, the twin brothers who actually, co- who actually created the movie, who actually directed the movie, were attended the same high school I did. In oh, wow, okay. But they did not graduate. They did, they, but they did attend the high school for I think two or three years. Okay. But it, that they were, it was a, it's a movie I think that a lot of folks need to watch. Um, and if you haven't, and if you have watched it, watch it again, please. <laughs> and he was young. I think he was a young uh, Black Panther a- activist in in Chicago. Um, Hampton, I think he was twenty three. Fred Hampton, 21, 23. Uh, 20. and he was murdered in his sleep by Chicago PD, the okay. FBI. I think one gunshot was fired. I think some other people were injured in the apartment. Uh, maybe yeah. another one or so killed. Uh, I think one gunshot was fired at the FBI and Chicago PD, and hundreds were fired by the FBI and the, and the Chicago PD back at, into that apartment. Correct. Um, and of course, his birthday just passed. I believe a couple of days ago. I think it was on Sunday, which we, and he would have been seventy five had he lived. Um, but one of the things that I want to bring up about Fred Hampton is his is a connection that he had to another American martyr by the name of Emmett Till. Of course, we all know who Emmett Till was the young the young brother from Chicago who was murdered in the who was lynched for daring to. To whistle at a white woman, um, and his uh, and, and his alleged allegedly though too. I mean, allegedly, allegedly. I think she went back in her story, I believe, or something yes, she like did. That. Yes, yeah. uh, Carolyn Bar- Carolyn Bryant Dunham did uh, did uh, say that did admit that that part that he never did such a thing, um, and and but um, Iberia ha- Iberia Hampton, Fred Hampton's mother, actually babysat was actually Emmett Till's babysitter because Till was from Chicago. He was actually just down in Mississippi visiting friends, visiting family members, excuse me. And uh, I want to go to MLK because you had brought MLK up here um, who said a lot of great stuff. Um, Basically, it's uh, rugged free market capitalism uh, for the poor and socialism for the rich. Uh, and I think he's, I read a couple different quotes, but he said the same kind of thing. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, in the United States, um, even people 
you know, centrists and people on the left and probably even some people on the right were applauding King uh, MLK when he was going in, going into the South and um, marching against, you know, racist sheriffs in Alabama and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, at the time, I'm sure racism was a problem, a huge problem back then as it is today. Um, but when really people started to turn against MLK, uh, especially the ruling class and the FBI, and he started to get a file, um, was when he tried when he started to take on the economic system. And that's yes. what I'm all about. I like working class politics. And he was murdered um, when he was uh, well, he was murdered in Memphis, Tennessee, when he was down there striking with Afri- African American city yes. sanitation workers, and when when he was trying to help lead that strike and organizing effort. So. Uh, you know, there was a lot of um, people, you know, supported what he was doing, but all of a sudden when he started to take on the uh, economic system and capitalism, that's when he was eliminated. Yes. And I'll let me get to, and I'd like to begin with uh, a, in 2000, I believe January of 2006, William Jones, who I actually knew, he was, a, he was one of my professors at Rutgers University. He now teaches at the, I believe, at the University of Minnesota. But at the time that he wrote this article in the Nation magazine, he was teaching at the University of Wisconsin, which, if you if you are familiar with, was a great place to study labor history. And Will was a lab- is not only a specialist in African American history, was a hit was an expert in labor history. His first book was on the lumber work lumber workers in North Carolina during the early twentieth century. But I digress. Will made a great observation that King was. In his latter years, and a lot of people don't talk about King post-1963, post-Washington, D.C., March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Um, But he was becoming increasingly critical of American capitalism, of of American materialism. He talked about the triple evils of racism, racism, militarism, and imperialism. He was turning his attention not just to, to domestic issues here at home, but foreign issues, but issues abroad. Because why? Why? Because he was starting to realize that American foreign policy is a direct reflection of American domestic policy. Both and both of them work hand in hand. If you, uh, what we do to uh, what we do to folks in Hanoi in the, uh, in, in the jungles of, uh, of Vietnam. What we have done to folks in the uh, in uh, in a, how we've toppled right wing government uh, left wing governments excuse me in Iran and Chile and Guatemala and uh, it's very they go hand in hand with the treatment of black folks and brown folks here in America. And so I'll here be- we go. I got a quote. Right now, as you're saying this, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his push for economic justice, and I will quote him, and one day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you're raising questions about the economic system and about a broader distribution of wealth. Uh-oh. Exactly. Exactly. Think, uh, a lot of people forget or don't even know that at the time of his murder, in, 19, in, uh, in uh, April 4th, 1968, at the Lorraine Hotel, King was probably the most despised man in America. He was probably the most, he was the most, he, he, I mean, he was, 
He was one of the, it's funny how we look at him 55 years after his murder and he's basically one of our heroes, but. Even the Republicans, even the Republicans who are gaslighting, they quote him now. It's ridiculous. And then you have folks like, and then you have every year on his, on the celebration of his birthday in January, the FBI puts out a tweet saying, oh, happy birthday, Dr. Martin Luther King. You are one of our heroes. You are one of that you had a file on this man uh, <laughs> that could fill that could fill that could rival the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, you are such hypocrite. It was probably the size of a couple phone books stuck together, you know. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's 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 pretty telling. This King was increasingly critical of of uh, of, Amer- of of the state of American affairs here. Um, Let's go to American affairs here. Let's talk about the political system. Let's talk about the two-party system. Let's talk about the Republicans and the Democrats. I mean, we have a business party. We have we have a one party in America, the business party with two factions. They're just called Republicans and Democrats. But I think you sometimes, outside of abortion and maybe some social social justice, whatever issues. Uh, the differences between these parties are just, you know, varying differences between what cor- what what uh, sector of the corporate um, business community is funding them. You know, it tends like, for example, you know, uh, fossil fuel industry tends to tends to um, fund Republicans who deny, you know, uh, climate change is going on, which is absurd. Obviously, it is. Uh, for example, like Trump is putting up retaining walls around his golf courses. He certainly knows global warming and, and the sea levels are rising. Um, but, you know, what, what do you think about the two-party system? What do you think about American politics right now? Um, you know, since since Martin Luther King's death, um, are, we, are we still fighting the same battle? I mean, this the civil rights era, that, that, that fight never stopped, right? No, it never stopped. Um, it it never stopped. And one thing I one thing that should probably send a chill to your viewers and to your listeners online if they're listening to this. The the hundreds of thousands and millions of uh of listeners we have on the Necessary Illusions podcast. I'm being silly. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. <laughs> maybe one day. <laughs> well well I hope that I hope that day is soon because it's very good. Um this is one thing that really should when when uh, when Joe Biden won his nomination, and I, oh, I got to quote this one: "If you ain't, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black." Right? Yeah. You said that. Yeah, but one thing that really should send a chill down your spine, and it should, although it probably shouldn't surprise you either, is the fact that Biden took more money from Wall Street than any uh, than than Donald Trump did. Uh, that's that was actually the same thing uh, in the McCain Obama, uh, McCain Obama campaign. Obama was basically pushed into the White House by Wall Street, who preferred him over McCain. It seems like we talked about the shifting business interests. It seems that Wall Street actually prefers the Democrats. Yeah, and this is, and you could thank Bill Clinton for that, to be honest, because. Whatever you th- yeah, he pushed the Democratic. I mean, the, obviously the Democrats left the working class decades ago, but okay. certainly Clinton pushed the, the party pretty far right, didn't he? Abandoned, yeah. Nineteen when Reagan broke the strike, the air air traffic control strike in nineteen eighty one. Of course, I was way too young to remember that. I don't even think I was born when that happened. The it was the beginning of the end for the working class in America. It was the beginning of the end of the of of labor as we knew it. Right as I as I said a few weeks ago. 
Reagan pushed the Reagan forced the Democrats to the right, but it was Bill Clinton and Barack Obama who kept them there. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I agree with you. That's good. Um, and for this one reason, because Bill Clinton, as we all know, before he became president of the United States, and even before he became governor of governor of Arkansas, excuse me, was one of the champions. Was one of the leaders of the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Council, these business-friendly, corporate-friendly Democrats who would later basically come to dominate the Democratic Party, overrun the Democratic Like Party. Michael Bloomberg, right? I mean, he's a big-money Democrat. That's that's kind of the way I see – he was the former mayor, right? That's kind of the way I see the Democratic mm-hmm. Party. Mike, Michael Bloomberg, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Barack Obama. That's the, that's the elitists within the party. Yes. Um, you could even say someone like uh, – someone like John Kerry as well. Sure. Um, and the Democratic Party has never been the same over the past three, four, now four decades, really. Yeah. Three decades now since Clinton took office in uh, in 93. Um, and at the same time, this is when Joe Biden was uh, one of the architects to the crime bill who, yes. uh, the infamous crime bill who locked up a disproportionate amount of black and minority people um, who is now in office uh, wanting to fund the police and add 100,000 more cops to American streets. We already have a police state, a surveillance state, and a state of mass incarceration. But apparently for people like Joe Biden, that's not enough. Not enough. Um, And of course, let's not forget that Joe Biden also wrote the predecessor to the Patriot Act as well, which is just as as hideous, just as evil. Um, as the as the crime bill that he wrote, um, and of course you have folks out there who are trying to defend, who are trying to defend that decision to write the crime bill as well. You forget that it was that crime was out of control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they always say. But I'm like, especially I remember those times, but I also remember that we did not ask to be locked up at rates that were disproportionately out of whack. They were higher than the Soviet Union. They were higher than apartheid South Africa. They're off the charts. Um, why don't you talk about your background a little bit, your education, your motivations, your inspirations. Um, what, what got you into left-wing politics and maybe talk about uh, your activism in New York City. You talked about uh, in your bio, um, your involvement in the protests with Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street. I've said a number of times on, on the podcast uh, the Occupy Wall Street was one of the things that radicalized me. I thought it was pretty cool. You know, I'm part of the 99%, as I'm sure you are as well. Uh, and all we're trying to do is, you know, get uh, fight back against this in this one-sided class war uh, against the one percent. Uh, the only war I believe believe in is class war. So, once once you go ahead and talk too. to me about uh, talk to talk to every all of us about your background and what got you into politics and um, you know maybe some of the activism and and things you've been involved in in New York. Okay. Well, I had the good fortune of attending uh, attending one of the great public universities in America, Rutgers University, uh, in the 1990s, early aughts, at a time when the new left, what we what's been termed the new left, uh, was really starting to see the uh, the sun set on 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 that movement. Um, I had the I had the great fortune of having folks. Who were part of that? Who were part of Rutgers and who had taught at the at the history department at Rutgers University, back, going back to the nineteen sixties and seventies when the new left on on 
on a lot of college tend to dominate a lot of college campuses, especially public college, uh, public universities like the University of Wisconsin, University of California at Berkeley, UCLA to an extent, Rutgers University, and I think the universe, and I also believe I, I could be wrong, the University of Illinois as well. Um, and I got the opportunity to meet and get uh, to learn from scholars such as Jim Livingston, who just retired, Jackson Lears, who is still teaching there. Will Jones, who was a, who was an out and proud Trotskyite, um, who was only there for a couple of years before taking the job at Wisconsin. Um, John Gillis, um, who has since passed away. Rudy, Rudolph Bell, who also passed away recently. Um, and then, of course, I mentioned another member of the New Left, who later would join the dark side, and Eugene Genovese, who was actually one of the who's at, who was on at who's one of the first of the members of the first of the new left on campus, um, really. And it's just, it was a great honor and privilege to learn history from these guys. And of course, on my own as well, take what I learned and, and just kind of build upon it um, And as I went along. Um, Is that your background in history? You certainly know a lot. Is your background in history or formal education? I was, at, I was a history major at Rutgers University, yes. So well, it shows. Let me tell you what it shows. Your your knowledge of history is incredible. Thank you. I'm 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 very honored. Um, I don't think it's particularly it's particularly expensive, but I, I I always try to find as much to learn as much as I can whenever I can. Um, and it's my and I, but I will say this: my knowledge of history does inform my understanding of how the world works, and it really does inform. How my my political my looks on my outlook on politics in America today because if you, you if you don't know what there's an old saying if you don't know where you've been you don't know where you're going um, to paraphrase what, I want to I want to ask this question of you as a history major and as a history buff how should history be taught in the United States how should it be taught anywhere um, in the public school system and and that kind of stuff. Uh, how, how should it be taught? Obviously, the right-wing attack and book-burning and critical yeah. race theory is like a buzzword now. Um, yes. I mean, is, is there objectivity to history, and how do you think it should be taught? You just brought up a very interesting term, obje objectivity. Right? I, I put it on in my in trailer. I said it's a it's a book by um, Howard Zinn, who's one of my favorite, favorite historical book writers. Book the United States? Uh, yeah, that's him. Uh, you can't stay neutral on a moving train. You got to pick a side, and I picked a side. I, I, I'd say the only people I hate more than Republicans and and neo neo conservatives are the moderates. I mean, pick a side for God's sakes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I know it's a I tough question. Yeah. Question. What's what's objectivity? These are tough questions. I love philosophy, that's so that's my favorite. Point. How can how can you be objective? When it comes to history, and I don't think there's a, I don't think it's that's an easy question to answer. Should, should you be objective when you're teaching history? You know, should you? Every, everyone has a bias, right? I think it's a lot easier for people to show their bias. Like when I talk about history, I'm a left winger. You know, I'm a radical leftist. That's how I go about my approach for educating people. And if you disagree with me, then we can have a discussion, and you can tell me I'm wrong. But I think some of my factual knowledge is there. Um, I, I can't stand the people that claim to be objective. I'm not political. I'm not a whatever, you know, I think they're just fooling us. You know, everyone has a bias. Everyone has a side. Everyone has an internal, un, un, 
you know, un, I guess conscious bias. So you might, you might as well because just, you're a human being. Yeah, you're We're a human being. To. You might as well just come out and tell me tell me which, what side you're on, then tell me the your interpretation of history. Because I don't think I, I like uh, this idea of objectivity. Objectivity should be reserved for graduate level philosophy courses, but it doesn't exist in the real world. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Um, and how, and we should, I will say this though. I don't know if we could teach history objectively, but we should teach history honestly. Hell yes. Hell yes. If we, and we can't, if we cannot be objective, we can at least be honest. We owe it to our children. We'll to anyone who's a student of history. I got this book right here, Howard Zinn, uh, A People's History of the United States. Obviously, this is audio only. He talks about one of the uh, massacres of the indigenous. Um, the, col- the colonialists went to a uh, Native American village and lured away all the, all the males, all the warriors, lured them away from the village. It was an ambush. So what they did was, uh, and again, this is Howard Zinn. This is how you teach history honest. When they, lured, when they lured all the men and the warriors away from the village, then the uh, colonialists come in and slaughtered all the women and children. You don't, you don't have that in too many textbooks in, in, uh, you know, in middle school and in elementary school. You don't talk about that kind of stuff. That's how it should be presented. You know, it, should not be, uh, it should not be whitewashed. It should not be presented with rose-colored glasses. It should be presented honestly. This is the way it was. It was ugly, you know? Exactly. And, and again, it's going to go back, and I'm going to go back, to, and I'm going to circle back to my trip to Berlin. I had the good fortune of taking a tour of, doing a tour of Berlin during, uh, and the subject was Berlin during Nazi, during Nazi Germany, during that Nazi Germany of World War II. So we saw the Reichstag building. We saw the, uh, pardon me, the Holocaust Memorial. We saw the remnants of the Berlin Wall. Pardon me, excuse me, I just had a soda, so yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I got one too, it's late for us here. Yeah, it's backing up, from, it's backing up on me, I think. But um, one of the, the tour guide asked an honest question. How can, and how can we, how can we be honest and, disp- and honest about history? And this is a question I, that had been asked to me that uh, when I took a survey on modern European history at Rutgers University. And because everywhere you go in Berlin, this is a, I would say few of all the major cities in Europe, of all the major European capitals and major cities, uh, uh, European capitals and cities, few are as in tune and as painfully aware of their own history and their own place in history as Berlin. Um, you can't really, you really cannot talk about 20th century Europe without talking about Berlin. It's almost it's it's the role it, the outsized role it played in world events in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and from the basically from the 20s to the 90s. It's almost impossible to talk about that uh, the, the role it played. Um, Let's go back to this. This is what I kind of started um, the podcast with. But, um, you know, the Civil War, not a lot has changed in, in, in terms of the voting lines. It's about the same as it was, uh, you know, at the, after the Civil War and, and during the Civil War in the United States in terms of, you know, division between um, North and South. Um, you know, and I think there I have not been to Germany. I've talked to a lot of people that have been there. But under my understanding, there's not any Nazi um, statues and war 
memorials or anything like that. But yet, later, over 100 years later, in the South, right now, they're still protesting um, these statues and memorials, and and they're still up, and they're still attributed. You know, they're still you know looked up, looked uh, looked upon favorably from people of the South, and it's ridiculous. Imagine if there was still Hitler. I mean, obviously these are these are different things, but I mean, I, I've taken a lot of history courses. I've listened to a lot of different podcasts. The Civil War was fought over slavery, you know. So exactly. obviously the Germans did a lot of terrible things. Um, you know, to, to the people that were in their war paths and to the people that were scapegoated, um, you know, Jewish people, especially in the Holocaust. But, um, you know, slavery was probably one of the worst moral crimes in world history. And yet we're Definitely. still in the South celebrating it. Yes. Um, and, I, and, to, and part of the reason why you don't see statues dedicated to Himmler or Goering or Goebbels or Ava Braun or Adolf Hitler is because the German government basically banned, outlawed those kind of those kinds of things. Um, it, in I believe in Germany it is illegal to deny the Holocaust. They, this the is Germans, for, to, to me though this is actually a touchy subject because I believe in free speech and I think when you give the government I I, I certainly I don't think. That denying the Holocaust is a good thing, but I deny people the right to speak their mind. If they truly believe that, of course, it's nonsense, right? But this now it's starting to get a touchy subject for me because I don't want the state to tell me what I can and can't say. Because when you give the state the authority to um, censor speech, and that's a form of censorship for sure. Of course, the Holocaust happened. I'm not going to argue that. But um, if you give the state the power over speech... Um, you're also giving them the power of truth, you know. So this is a touchy subject. America has really good free speech laws, and they take it seriously. Um, I, you know, when you get into Holocaust stuff, the, I, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that's part of the reason why you see a lot of these still these statues dedicated to the likes of Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee, and you have military bases named after John Hood, who led a terrible. And John Hood, because they're going to argue that this, because you have folks out there, especially in the Deep South, neo Confederates, out there saying, this is our heritage. We have a right to right. protect it. Right. We have a right no. to defend it. We have a right to speak about it. You can't deny us that. Yeah, what I would and, say is, I, I would say, I like the idea of. Uh, uh, outlawing Nazi statues, and I like the idea of the U.S. federal government and state governments outlawing uh, naming military ba- bases after Confederates. Um, but in terms of like just general people talking about it, um, I think that you know they can they can say whatever they want, whether they want to deny it or not. I give them the right to say that. Of course, it's nonsense. And what I would say is, you know, you got to educate these people because they're. The, the Holocaust is well documented. You know the crimes of Nazi exactly. Germany are well documented. Uh, it's certainly easy to win a debate uh, against a, as a against a, a Holocaust denier. But uh, yeah, I like the idea of not allowing the statues and not allowing bases to be named after them. I think that's a decent start. Um, and then of course you have, uh, and I think in Germany as well, you have to take two years of history. Really, I think you have, a, you have to take a two year course on in high school in, in the German equivalent of a high school of. The Holocaust and World War II, which I think is something, and I, I've always said that if you really want, and what, and I, and that kind of hit home for me because, of course, earlier this year, Governor De- Ron DeSantis of Florida decides that he took he took so much of an issue 
with the, eight, with the newly established AP African American Studies Survey in Florida high schools that they ended up just basically killing it. Yeah. Um, I've always said that if you really, and one of the here's something I did I told you I I didn't bring up. Um, in addition to being a history major at Rutgers University, I was also a literature major. And, and I, studied, I studied, yeah. So I was a glutton for academic. <laughs> yeah, you were. But I loved it. And one of the things that Rutgers had done when I first got there, it, and this mind you, this is almost 25 years ago. They had they had put in a place that by that time it had been in place for several years now already um, a policy where the majors had to take a course of some aspect of African-American literature, whether it was just a regular survey, introductory survey, or something more advanced like a course on black women writers or the black or black poetry or the Harlem Renaissance or what have you. And to give them an idea of how other voices Treated the English language and the and the, liter- and the literary tradition of the Eng- of, of the English language. Um, I've always loved that, and I've always appreciated it. And I think of and Rutgers was one of the first universities to implement that. When the first, pardon me, one the first primary predominantly white institutions to institute yeah. that. So, so it was a great, and, and and as a result, we ended up having some great folks out of that in that in that department. Who some who are still uh, in, in the university, some of them who, but a lot of them have since left, and I think more than a few have since passed. Um, who really made sure that students knew the impact that Black writers had on literature and on on the literary tradition of England in in America and and in England. Um, I think that if you and why do I bring that up because. I think if you are a serious, if we really want to be serious about address uh, educating our young folks, and I know you're, I know you're a person who's big on education. Yeah, let's get into the education system before we go some fun questions. Let me uh, let's get into it. What should education be about? I want to say the new form of slavery is debt and the two trillion dollar student loan crisis. Uh, the Biden administration is only adding to is, is now the biggest debt collector in the world. Two trillion dollars. Sure. The government could wipe out the, that money. It's not money owed to the government. It's money owed to the government that the, the government controls. At least the vast majority of it. He could easily wipe it out with executive order. He doesn't want to. Um, and obviously, any lawsuit is, is going to be well funded by the right to attack um, whatever tactic uh, Biden uses. So certainly, you know, it's an uphill battle with student loan forgiveness. But again, I think uh, student loan uh, crisis is a new form of slavery. Debt. I tweeted that earlier today. Debt is a form of economic slavery. Um, but what about the education system in the United States and, you know, people going into thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to, of debt to advance their education? I had mentioned uh, in our pre-call, you maybe want to go to medical school and you have quite a, an academic background. Um, you have the opportunity to educate yourself as everyone should, don't you think? Yes. Um, education, first and foremost, I'm going to invoke the, uh, the words of one of our great here of one of our great heroes, W.E.B. Du Bois. Education must not teach work; it must teach life. It's a, it's the uh, we must educate young people to think for themselves, but also to have to be uh, to be cognizant of the dialogues and the discussions that came before them. And the discuss and to prepare and and to prepare the next generation 
for those same com for those same dialogues and discussions and debates that are that uh that that they will have to address and uh discuss. And but unfortunately, that's not what we, I don't know if we've seen that in America. I've talked about I had an education doctor, Dr. Ron, uh last week. Uh the way I posed it to him and he didn't really push back on me too much. Uh, it seems like the education system is a system of indoctrination to teach obedience, conformity, certainly uh, to filter out you know, problems. You know, if you're labeled a problem, if you ask difficult questions to the teacher, you go to the principal's office, literally. Um, uh, there's a disruption. Um, so it's simply not to think creatively, to think independently, to think critically, to ask difficult questions, although it should be. Yeah, and, and, and think about and I'm glad you bring that up because especially considering how certain School districts, it's, it's actually, and I'll get to that. Part of the reason why we have the problems that we have with, in terms of public education is because of how we fund our school system, our public school systems. We are, we, I think we're the only country that, that takes, that bases our funding, that bases funding for education off of property taxes. Because if you are, if you're a homeowner, you're going to pay, you're going to pay property taxes. Renters do not. So there's going to be, so there's going to be less, less money in the kitty for them in the, in those school districts when the, when the, when the pop, when the property tax base is so small. And now, uh, now you got me on a different, different, even a different uh, question here. Landlords. Should we have landlords? Should we be renting? I mean, landlords, that's a, that's a term left over from feudalism, isn't it? Landlordism is about, should, should go the way of the dinosaur, in my opinion. Oh man, I agree with you. It should go the way of the dinosaur. Hey, can we get into some fun questions? These, I'm sorry. Can we get into some fun questions to end with here? Is that cool? Sure. Let's do some fun questions because this is one of my first ones on the list here. Did this is all fun stuff from here on out? We're just gonna have a couple of silly questions, and I'll give you some time to plug whatever you want. Yeah, you've been a great guest. I've learned so much. So, anyways, and now we're transitioning from a serious two-hour discussion about politics and race. Holy cow! All right, let's end with some fun stuff. Did the dinosaurs have feathers? You know what? I'm asking myself that same question because, I mean, maybe maybe some of them did. Maybe some species did. But I'm not a paleontologist. I have no, I have no, I have no knowledge of the, of the structures of, the, of, of dinosaurs. Or, but I, maybe the ones that flew or were the predecessors to, uh, to flight, to birth, to Birds that flew, that birds that fly. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe they pterodactyl. Did. Yeah, like a pterodactyl. I can see a pterodactyl having feathers. I've, I've been I've been reading and seeing some stuff that maybe a lot more dinosaurs had feathers than we originally thought. I saw a really funny uh, drawing of like a goose. If the, if, if a goose was like uh, uh, if it was. Um, Colored like a, you know, they typically do like like a, the, the dinosaurs with like, uh, you know, leathery skin and, you know, scales and that sort of thing. And it was the most terrifying thing ever. But it had feathers, so it looks actually nice and fluffy and cute. Um, so I think actually more dinosaurs uh, had feathers than maybe we, or at least originally think, uh, yes. that I thought, at least back in the, whatever, when I was growing up uh, in a different era. Okay, where, where's Bigfoot hiding? Is Bigfoot out there where's somewhere Bigfoot? hiding? You know what? I wouldn't believe, I would, I have not encountered Bigfoot. I've never been out west yet, not yet anyway. But I could see him. I could see him somewhere in like um, big sky country, like Mount, like Montana, yeah. Yeah. or Idaho, and just like and just wanting to be left alone. 
Is there any is there any interesting urban legends from like New York and New Jersey? Uh, I think was it it's like the Swamp Fox or something like that? That might be in uh, or Swamp Swamp Beast or some kind of swamp thing in Louisiana. Obviously, you got the yeah. the Yeti. You got Bigfoot. Is there any like urban legends or you know scary yeah. creatures? In Jersey, we had something called the Jersey Devil. Oh, what's that? Um, I'm not really sure what it is. I don't know how to describe it because, um, <laughs> but he's some, but it's something of an urban. Like, think of it. I think the Jersey Devil kind of reminds me of the Chupacabra. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the oh, Chupacabra with a with a Jersey accent. <laughs> oh my gosh. Are we alone in the universe? Who would be alone in the universe? Are we that's alone very, in the universe? That's a, that's a very scary thought because oh. I hate to think that I hate to think that this is the only planet that has any that that has any kind of life that's even remotely intelligent. What do you think, though? What do you think? If, if I if I was to say if I knew the answer to this question, what would you put your money on? If I was betting you, uh, I'd say there's intelligent life elsewhere. We just the, I think that I think that intelligent life was is intelligent because they haven't contacted us yet. We're not ready. We're not ready for that. We're not ready for that smoke yet. I think uh, if they came to Earth, they'd be like, "Yeah, there's no intelligent life here either." Exactly. <laughs> exactly. At least if you look at our government and our economic system, certainly. Uh, do you think aliens have been here? UFOs? What about what's all the hubbub about UFOs recently? You think they've been here? They've been here. I think, think they've so. been here. I think they've been here. You think I, the I government think, and I the mean, whistleblowers? They've been here. They took one look at us and said, "Yep, no intelligent life here. Let's keep it moving." <laughs> you think our government? What do you think is going on in Area Fifty One? You think our government has uh, UFOs and crafts, and think they're reverse engineering them? It's a very good possibility. It's a possibility. I, I, again, I do not have all the. I have almost. I know. No, I know next to nothing about Area Fifty One. Not my area. Not my forte. But it wouldn't surprise me that something's going on down there. You believe in God? Like you, I'm an agnostic, so it's hard to say. Um, yeah, what does God even mean, right? That's what I always what I, when people yeah, ask me, I say, "Well, define God." You know, what if is, it's some yeah. guy sitting on a cloud somewhere? Then I say, "No, I don't." Nah, I don't know about that. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't go down that route. Um, and more important, let's say God does exist. How do you know that's the God of the Christian? How do you know the God that exists is the God of the Bible? Right. I think that's I think that's probably the uh, because you you really can't and I've had, and I I'm starting to have some kind of conversations with a couple of my relatives. Okay, like I said, I come I my family hails from both both sides. Of my family hail from Jamaica, and on my mother's side, we are very much this old school. It's not just religious; it's just old school religion of fire and brimstone. Wow. Yeah, it's like it's, uh, my, fear, uh, my, right? I mean, fear. Religion kind of uses fear to keep people in line. Like if you don't, if you don't follow the gospel, you're going to burn in hell, right? That's fear. My, my grandmother, may she rest in power, was a holy ruler until the day she died. Um, and my mother, like I said, left the left the Pentecostal faith for Catholicism of all things. Um, but even then, never that that same fire and brimstone never really left her. Um, I kind of picked up, and I kind of picked up that as well along the way. Um, I don't know why, but I did. But in any event, um, I don't want to say that. Well, I don't want to discount the existence of a God. I do want to say that 
I don't think the if the God if God exists it is not the God in the Old Testament or certainly the God or the one in the New Testament either. Let me uh, let me ask a question. How sometimes it's phrased during our indoctrination in the good uh, Western education system, and I want to see how you're going to answer it. Why is the United States the greatest country in the history of the world? Well, who said that we are the greatest country? Exactly. We're not. We're not. You know, but don't you remember these kind of assignments back in the day? Getting asked these silly questions and you're supposed to write this ridiculous premise. We're not. We're just like any other superpower in world history. And we're probably, um, you know, here's another question. The United States and the empire that it is. Do you see, does it have an end? Does it have a shelf life? When, when will the end of the American empire, when will that occur? Will it occur? I think we're seeing the, la- I think we're in those last days of the American empire, of the Pax Americana. Um, and we have been, ooh, one would say since the 19- since the 1980s. I think that, so I told, I quoted this uh, right after the World War II. We were in a unique place, 6.5% of the world population, 50% of the world's wealth, and it's been dwindling and our influence has been dwindling ever since. Uh, We were in an unprecedented position of power. Uh, The United States was not targeted, I mean, its colony was Hawaii, but uh, was not involved in the massive war uh, that was going on in mainland Europe and a lot of the world at the time. So uh, U.S. power, I think, since 1945 uh, and its apex has been decreasing. Um, but, you know, I think it's certainly certainly on the downward slide. I think that the United States uh, empire will crumble from within, and I think we're seeing that happen right now with the inner cities and the number of crises we have. I have this – I bring this up on some podcasts. Uh, we have – I think we have a C-minus grade for our infrastructure. Uh, our school system, our, our bridges are C, our drinking water C-minus, our schools are – uh, D, hazardous waste, D+. Plus. I mean, we've got so many problems going on. But anyways, I digress. Let's get to this. a couple more fun questions and we'll be out of here. What's your favorite food? Ooh, without a doubt, pizza. Oh, man, I had some earlier today. I love pizza, too. New York's got some good pizza, doesn't it? Yes, it does. You, have any, yes, it you, does. you want to plug any favorite pizza joints there? Uh, I would recommend Joe's Pizza on the corner of Third Avenue and Fourteenth East Fourteenth Street. Um, it's part of it's part of a chain. There are several others. There's one near Times Square. Avoid that, like the bubonic plague, because the lines are disgustingly long. But the one, but the one in, uh, on Fourteenth Street and Third and Third uh, Avenue East Fourteenth, um, not far from Union Square, is really good. Um, and yeah, that's probably the one. That's probably the, that's probably the first place I would. I would if I was dropping you off at a desert island, let's say I got I took care of food and hygiene and that kind of stuff. So just for entertainment purposes, if I took you to a desert island, island for a month, what, what's three things you might bring with you to occupy yourself? Maybe a book or a movie or what would you what would you bring? Books, definitely bring books. Um, give, the, give give me the three books you'd bring. Uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, which I think is a which is a Man, an absolute must read for every American in this country. Um, I would also recommend, I guess, because like I said, I'm a literature guy. I have a soft for, for fiction. I would definitely recommend James Baldwin's "Go Tell It on the Mountain," and, and uh, I'm not sorry, thanks, I'm sorry. Cornell West's "Race Matters." I think that's a book that I think a lot of folks really. Uh, 
should be reading, especially now that he's announced his candidacy for president of the United States. Um, whatever you may think of him personally, that's another story. But he has a but his uh, his academic his his academic career is almost without Pierre and his and what he's written in, over the past several decades really deserves a, a good look at why we should at least entertain the prospect of him being president. Couple more, couple more minutes here. We're really going through this full. We said twenty minutes, but we're really moving here. But uh, a couple more questions. We're almost done. Who's going to win the twenty twenty four election? At this point, as much as I would love to see Cornell West win, I hate to say it. I, I really hate saying it. I can see Donald Trump winning this. Wow. I can see Donald. I think Biden's going to win. I think it's going to be a close one. I think Biden's going to win. Uh, that's the way I see it. But yeah, it's, there's no question about it. It's neck and neck. Trump could definitely be the next president. I mean, Joe Biden has an approval rating in a very high low, in the high thirties, low forties. Shouldn't it's, be good. Why would it be good? I mean, what's what's there to be? What's what's the what what positive do we see at the Joe Biden presidential administration? Yeah, anyway, let's skip that stuff. Let's skip that stuff. Last couple questions here. Do you have a hidden talent? I don't know if it's hidden, but it, but if you've ever seen me play Jeopardy, you're going to ask yourself why. Is, I've been I've and I've been asked this. People have asked me this question: Why don't you go on the show? I'm like, um, because I don't want to. <laughs> you should want try. To. We got yeah, we got to sort of go fund me or something. You got to get on Jeopardy. Let's see it. Let's see it happen. Oh God, no, 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 no! I think you'd you be great. Know. I think you'd be incredible. All right, last two questions. I'm going to try to leave us on an upbeat uh, path here. What gives you hope, motivation, inspiration for the future? Generation Z. This generation that came after me. Yeah. I see. I see them paying a lot of them paying attention to what the boomers, what their the, what their boomer generation X and generation Y, so being a millennial. Uh, have had to endure, have had to go through. I'm learning too. We started the fight. I think Gen Gen Z is going to pick up where we left off. Yeah. You know, but we started this fight. We started this, and I think the, I think Gen Z will pick up. Will succeed where we may uh, we may come short. Oh, we're going to um, come short. All right, there's no way we're going to we're not gonna, we're going to get all the way. But I think uh, we're going to make some moves here. But hopefully, uh, we're going to set the stage for Gen Z. Exactly, and that's and that's what gives me hope for the um because they they're because a lot of them are out and uh. And they are not afraid to mobilize. They are not afraid to organize. They are not afraid to uh, to demand better. Speak their from, mind. They speak their mind, don't they? And I really, really like that. And, I, and I'm glad they are. And I wish more of us, when we were their age 20 years ago, yep. 15, 20 years ago, had done had, had the courage to do so. Um, I was radicalized but, way later than I wanted, I should have been. You know, I, I was sleepwalking. Uh, yeah, totally. To- totally missed at least 10 years, you know. So it's a good thing that we are paying. So it's a good thing that they're paying attention because they're going to need that for the fights to come. And no question. And no question. Got to keep. There's going to be more losses than wins. So you got to. You got to. You got to understand. You got to accept that. And you got to keep going. You got to keep pressing on. Last question exactly. here. Last question. We got less than five minutes. So I'll let you plug whatever you want. What's the meaning of life? To look out for your fellow man. To, and fellow woman. Yep. Solidarity forever. I always say that at the beginning of the podcast. Solidarity forever. My, I, I will say this. This is not something I talk about very often, but I went to a pub. I went to a, I did not go to a public high school. I went to a private high school, and we had an, a, we had a motto: whatever, whatever hurts my brother hurts me. 
And that is something that I take with me every day. That was that was that was drilled into me, and it's something that I carry with me very proudly. That's why I come out and that's why I say I'm a socialist. That's why I come out and say I'm proud to be a socialist. I'm proud to I'm proud to embrace socialist policies, things that will improve my that will improve my fellow man, that will help my fellow man and help my fellow woman. Grim Walker, you're on the you're on the you get the plug here. You get the plug. You get the last whatever amount of time. Is there anything you want to plug? Where can people find you? Where can they, if they like this discussion, um, you know, where, where are you fighting for right now? Anything you want to plug? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, you feel free to follow me on Instagram. My Instagram is my name, all one word, Karim Walker. Um, follow me on Twitter, uh, shift underscore into underscore turbo. It's a, it's a, it's a, I pay homage to the Power Rangers franchise. Of course, that this year marks the 30th anniversary of its arrival in America. And the N2 is the I-N and the number two, uh, Turbo. Um, and that's it. That's it. it, it and anyone wants to have these debates, if you have conversations down the road, I'd love to have them. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time, Karim. Uh, learned a lot tonight. Thanks again. Uh, had a great discussion. Thank you. I did too. All right. Have a great night. Be well. Thank you, MC. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Karim Walker, for a great discussion tonight. He's a scholar and a student of history, and I learned so much. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.